1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of Dance Notes History. We've got a crossover episode here with the History Hit Medieval podcast, which, of course, inevitably is called Gone Medieval. It's presented by Dr. Kat Jarman, Matt Lewis, and it's going great guns. But Kat Jarman and I, we're a little Mexican standoff because there's big news coming out of Newfoundland about the Vikings and their precise dating at that site. Kat and I eyeballed each other. None of us blink, So it's like a crossover episode. So this will be going on my feed and her feed. It was great for me, I had a little co-presenter and one that actually knew what she was talking about, unlike your host Dan Snow. We were both very excited to talk to Brigitte Wallace. She is an archaeologist, a sort of a legend in the field, really, a Norse specialist working in North America. She spent most of her career working for Parks Canada, and her best-known work is at L'Anse au Meadow. Google is such a wonderful site. It's on the northern tip of Newfoundland. It is the most perfect place the Vikings would possibly have built a way station if they were travelling from their settlements in Iceland, Greenland, in to the North American continent. And so sure enough, when legendary husband and wife team in the 1960s started looking for Viking sites in North America. They just looked at the map. They hiked into this point. Helga and Ann Innistad, the they were found humps and bumps. They did actually find a Viking settlement. I have been there. it's one of the most exciting places I've ever gone. Proof that the Vikings crossed the Atlantic 500 years before Christopher Columbus. But until now, we didn't have reliable dates. We didn't exactly know when they settled and built also Meadow. But thanks to the fantastic, cutting-edge, isotopic, dendrochronology. I think those things are true. Thanks to that, the wonderful team looking at the site have worked out that the Vikings were present in Newfoundland in 1021. While King Canute was lording it up, had established Scandinavian rule over England, the Vikings were busy making things in Newfoundland. The reason they know that is because there was an amazing upsurge in atmospheric radiocarbon concentration in 1993. So a kind of solar flare or something like that, a big spike. And you see it all over the world when you look at tree rings. And all they've had to do is count the tree rings from that moment they've identified in 993 out to the wany edge of the wood, basically where the bark is. And that tells you exactly what age the wood was when it was cut and it was used in these wooden objects. It is a great honour both to have Dr. Kat Charman, who's a world leading expert on the Vikings, as co presenter of this pod, but also Begita Wallace, who knows the site better than anybody else alive. Very, very exciting new developments. In fact, if you want to watch mine and Kat's programme, which we trace the process of a Viking army, the great heathen army across Northeastern and Southern England, you can do that at History Hit TV. It's one of our most successful ever programmes, documentary on there. It's like Netflix for history. We've got an annoying number of people at the moment watching The Rise of Napoleon. It's knocked my Nelson documentary off the top spot, very annoyingly. But well done, everyone, for watching The Rise of Napoleon. Glad you're enjoying it. If you sign up today, you get 30 days free. Get a historyhit.tv, historyhit.tv, and then you become a subscriber you join the revolution and if you subscribe this is the good news folks you're going to pay less than it costs for a pint of beer every month for the rest of eternity and you're going to have access to history at tv which is brilliant in the meantime folks here's Kat Jam and i talking to baghita wallace enjoy thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you very much for inviting me
0: it's great to have you on talking about this exciting discovery Yes, it is. It's very unusual to get anything absolutely precise in archaeology.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is really something that's taken the world by storm, hasn't it, for so many reasons. So yeah, we'd we'd love to hear a bit more about it.
0: Yes. Well, I'm only an archaeologist, so I do not understand all the science behind it. But it's a really interesting discovery that every so often there is solar activity that affects the radiocarbon in trees and that affects the tree rings. And the year 1993-94 had a period of solar activity that was unusual, very unusual, and it affected tree growth in the entire world. And it's reflected in the tree rings. The tree rings will show a spike, they form a sharp peak and it becomes very distinctive in tree rings. And if you know that this happened in nine ninety-three ninety-four, you can use it for dating. If you have a piece of wood with bark and it's cut and you can see the tree rings, if you can identify this one tree ring, you then can count the rings from the bark in and you know that that particular tree ring is from 993-94 then you can just count the rings out to the bark and if you have 14 more rings then you just add that to 993-94 and you get a date when that tree was felled and of course that is very useful
1: you've been very modest and said so you're just the archaeologist but As the archaeologist, you must be thrilled when the scientists deliver evidence like this to you because it must confirm lots of things that you believe about this site.
0: Yes. From the archaeology, we have decided the Lanzo Meadows site, which was chosen to test this new method because the site had already been dated roughly to the late 10th century, early 11th century. We knew that from a, we have a large number of radiocarbon dates but they were not precise although radiocarbon dates over the years we have been using them have become much more accurate or have less error margin than before but we certainly did not have an exact date for the site so when margot Qutems, and i apologize for my pronunciation of her site i cannot it in Dutch, which is quite different. When she and her co-worker Michael D. came to us and said they would like to see if we could get an exact date on Ralston Meadows, I was very excited.
2: And it's exciting for so many reasons, isn't it? So, I mean, obviously, the methods in itself is exciting. But should we just backtrack a bit to the site itself and why it's interesting? So this really is the only known and excavated Viking site in North America. And you, really, one of the main people to have have excavated it. So can you tell us a little bit what was actually discovered there, just sort of to go back to the beginning?
0: Well, it made quite a splash in the news when Helge Ingstad, the Norwegian Helge Ingstad, in 1960, 61, he found it in 1960, declared that he had found a north Side, And the excavation began there. But it's located on the northernmost tip of Newfoundland, at the top of a long peninsula, in an area which in the 1960s was quite remote. I mean, there was no road in. When I came there, I had to walk in the first time. So there was a lot of skepticism. Not so strangely, because for a couple of hundred years, people have been looking for this particular North site. Since we have textual references to North people from Greenland coming to North America.
2: Yeah, that's from the sagas, isn't it? Yes. So the sagas describe this Vinland, which nobody quite knew where it was.
0: Exactly. I mean, there are descriptions in the sagas how they sailed from Greenland and south. The sagas are deceptively accurate in their descriptions of things. So people have become sure of, yes, it's there or there, and it varied from. Labrador down to the Washington area when everybody using the same text. So there was a lot of disbelief in what Helge Ingsten had found.
2: Yeah. So we had these sagas describing this Vinland and then in the 60s, this discovery is being made and he was claiming that this was it. This was the same sites.
0: Yes. And what they found were eight buildings. And these buildings form three complexes, each consisting of a big hall and a smaller building right beside it. And it's on the shore of a bay, looking out towards Labrador. And the buildings, architecturally, you can see immediately that they are the same type as you find in Iceland and Greenland in the early 11th century. They're built of sod over a wooden frame, and the holes found there are very large. They can room about 30 people each. But there was disbelief because no other professionals had gone there. It was so difficult and so remote that people didn't bother even checking out. But eventually, it was recognized that, yes, this really is an old site.
2: And then you got involved a little after that, didn't you, in the excavations?
0: Yes. I worked with the Ingstads a couple of summers, and then the site became a National Historic Site of Canada. And a committee was formed with the Ingstads as the head of it to see how they could develop it the way Parks Canada usually does, prepare it for visitors and so forth. And they found out that there were many questions that still remained unanswered. For instance, how long were they there? And what did they do? How did they interact with the indigenous population? Because there are indigenous sites on there as well. And so the committee recommended further excavations. But unfortunately, Anastinia Ingstad did not want to lead those. So a Swedish archaeologist by the name of Bengtsjönbeck was called in to continue lead excavations. And he asked me to become an assistant there. And I was, at the time, I was working at a museum, at Carnegie Museum of Natural History in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I was far away, but the museum seconded me for the fieldwork. Then after three years, Bengtsjönbeck returned to Sweden and more excavations was needed. So at that time, it fell into my hands. At that time, I became the director for the archeology of the site.
2: that was a pretty amazing thing to be part of, really, wasn't it?
0: Yes, and it so happened too, that in 1975, for personal reasons, I wanted to leave Pittsburgh and Mars Canada offered me a job as archaeologists for the Atlantic region of North Canada. And Los Meadows came under that. So it became part of what I did for North Canada.
1: I'm always struck by its position geographically. It's perfect for crews moving from Greenland down into the eastern seaboard. And there's a hint, isn't there, there's a hint that Norse people did go further south. But is it the butternuts that you found? Yes. After one excavation,
0: I took all the seeds and handed it to a botanist and asked him, can you identify them? And also, are they natural to the region? And he said, are oh, everything is, is exactly what you expect, except for these darn butternuts. What are they doing there? And that, of course, sent me searching for where do they grow? And so it so happens that the northernmost limit for buttonats is the northeastern New Brunswick. But the mut- nuts, there are three of them. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to radiocarbon dating because the DNA also has more or less disappeared over time. But they were found in context with the Norse artifacts. We knew that they had come there with the Norse. And that opened up a whole new window, what the site was about.
1: You're listening to Dan Snow's history and a gone million crossover. We're talking about the Vikings in the new world. More after this. Join us
0: today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe.
1: Hi there, everyone. I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my good friend and host of American history hit, Don Wildman. On Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids – uncover the secrets behind these incredible objects, and learn about the history of war, science, crime, and everything in between. You're going to love this podcast, all about the remarkable objects in our treasure houses that are museums. Please go and check it out. Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. Do you think we'll ever find sites to the further south, into either... New Brunswick, the Maritime Provinces, or even into New England? Do you think that's the dream? It's the dream, but
0: I really doubt it. For one thing, I don't think we will find any trace of them in the area where I think they went and got the butternuts, which is the miramichi Chaleur Bay area of New Brunswick. Because you had a handful of people there for a couple of months probably living in tents and booths or just temporary Norse dwellings where you build the walls but don't bother with a roof, but you add a tent cloth or so to cover them instead. As for more sites than lots of meadows, when you know now that the initial period of the Greenland colony didn't have more than about four to 500 people, and Lansomedos is very big. It would have been able to roam anywhere between 60 to 90 people. That's a big proportion of the entire colony in Greenland. And especially as the type of artifacts we found at Lansomedos are primarily of male nature. It's hard work like iron making, carpentry, and boat repair then you don't expect people to have had energy to go and build another site of the same
1: nature. Kat, it's so amazing, isn't it? Listen to Brigitte here, because you're someone who specializes in the Vikings going east all the way into Central Asia, and now we're talking about the very furthest, westernmost point of that Norse expansion as well. So it's a very special thing for you, I imagine.
0: It really is, for both of us. Yes, it is. (laughs) It's because I ended up in the Western Hemisphere and I know from my DNA I'm 14% Norwegian, so there. It is
2: really remarkable. I think it shows that westernmost that you've been looking at and the easternmost that I'm looking at. But it's quite similar because a lot of these are quite temporary because what you've been describing is this, they're quite temporary settlements, aren't they? They're not sort of permanent colonies. And I think we see that in so many other parts. We see that, you know, early stages in England and we see it in the east as well. They're they're sort of temporary camps for specific reasons, which I think is quite remarkable over that distance. And can you say a little bit more about the reason for this settlement?
0: I mean, the reason for Lanzo existence is, I think, it's not colonization. It is exploration of what would be useful to use in Greenland. Because it was a new settlement in Greenland in a completely different environment than Iceland. So they had to change their lifestyle to some extent. And also they knew here were other lands. And let's see what's there. So it's just an exploration, but it was not a possibility to actually expand as colonists all the way there. It was too far away from the mother country.
2: So do we know then, I mean, is that the reason, do you think, that it was so short-term, that distance? Why did it not last? Why did they not stay unsettled?
0: settle? The Greenland colony was too small to split up further, to found a settlement. We know from the later colonization, it takes three to four hundred people. And especially in a, when you found a new settlement where there is, you can't go to a store and buy things. You have to start completely from the beginning. Even with herds, with cattle, with sheep, you have to build them up. You can't transport a huge herd of sheep or cattle in Viking ships you have to be modest at the beginning and expand them.
2: So there were sort of natural limits then, I suppose.
0: Yes, but you could also see the usefulness of finding another area where you have, for instance, tree growth, since Greenland did not have that to any extent, and that would have been useful. And I do think they kept contact with the areas north of Lanzo Meadows, in the closer ones, like uh, Labrador, that has big forests. Yeah.
2: And in the Sargass, one interesting aspect is the interaction between the indigenous population and these incomers. And you said that that was one of the things that you'd wanted to look into as well. Is that something that we know anything about?
0: Yes. At Los Maros, I think we know that they did not encounter indigenous people there. As far as we can tell from the relatively rough radiocarbon datings we have, there were no indigenous people there between around 850 and 1200, except one little, really tempting piece, a little arrowhead that could be from the time of the nose, but it was found inside one of the turf walls. And we don't know if it was shot into that, or if it was simply in the turf when the doors came there, because that's a possibility as well.
1: Can you give us a sense, us soft British people, give us a sense of what winter is like in Anse Meadow, or what it was like in the 11th century. What do we think the climate would have been like for months on end? It would have been
0: slightly warmer than, uh, let's say, in the 1970s. Now, of course, we are approaching that again. And today, winters can be, uh, have a lot of snow, but it certainly wouldn't have had more snow than in Greenland. They would have been used to the environment there. It's very similar to that of Iceland. Winters are not terribly cold and summers are short. They were used to that from both Iceland and Greenland. But we have, One interesting fact, and that is, if the temperatures had been 1.5 to 2 degrees warmer, there may not have been snow there at all. The winter of 1998, the overall winter there was warmer, so there was no snow at Lanzo Meadows at all. If I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I wouldn't believe it. So, that could have been the case in the early thousands.
2: One thing that nobody's found there, there's no sign of any burials, is there? So, there's no cemetery, there's nothing like that. So, we don't have evidence for any of the people who came there,
0: and really who they were. No, we searched high enough for that. We have air photos, we have foot inventories. And we thought we found one, one of the early years there. And we began digging. He had worked for about two or three days. When the caretaker of the site, a local person by the name of Lloyd Decker, son of a man who had led Hen Gangster to the site, came and sat down on the low turf wall and said, Hmm, I see you are digging my turnip garden. Ah, <laughs> so not quite. <laughs> because they had walled gardens in the. Little walls were of turf, so, so much for some archeologists, but no. And if they had been there a long time, I think we would have found burials. That's one of the many indicators.
1: It was very short. So we've got this big news that's just come out. Are you excited? There's going to be more. Are we going to be learning about also Meadow for years to come? Probably.
0: And the whole site. There have been so many little pieces of information coming and everyone has just added one little fact to it. And we now have a fairly full story, but we'll probably have more sometime.
1: Kat, we need to get out there. We need to get out there and do some looking.
0: Yeah, I think we do. We'll help the search. Yes, well, a group from Memorial University of Newfoundland is uh, going to do some more work beginning this summer. So we'll see. Oh, it's very
1: exciting. Very, very exciting. And obviously, Kat, we will be covering this. Every time anyone finds anything to do with the Norse Vikings, you can listen to History Hit because we will be covering it, that's for sure. We're obsessed yes, with it. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Yes, thank you. My
1: pleasure.
0: All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished.
1: Thank you for making it to the end of this episode of Dan Snow's History. I really appreciate listening to this podcast. I love doing these podcasts. It's a highlight of my career. It's the best thing I've ever done. And your support, your listening is obviously crucial to that project. If you did feel like doing me a favour, if you go to wherever you get your podcasts and give it a review, give a rating, obviously a good one, ideally, then that would be fantastic and feel free to share it. We obviously depend on listeners, depend on more and more people finding out about it, depend on good reviews to keep the listeners coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds